A couple of years ago, someone gave me this wonderful teddy bear doll with a funny straw hat on it. Since it's such a gorgeous day outside, I thought I'd play a little bit. You press her hand and here's what you get. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to my sister-in-law, Sandy, who's having a birthday today, and my nephew, Michael, uh, also having a birthday. <laughs> Welcome to a midsummer edition of Booth One, your place to chill for the best in the art of lively conversation. Uh, I'm your host, Gary Zabinski, and it's a joy to welcome my guest this week in the booth, a good friend and a marvelous storyteller who I know that you will enjoy, the lovely Julia Mesh. Welcome, Julia. Hi, Gary. How are you? I'm good. You were at the Cub game yesterday, weren't you? Ah, uh, yes, I was. They, well, did you see what's going on today? I, I did. Uh, I did. See, I think we dodged a bullet. We got to see two home runs, and even if they didn't win, it was a, it was a beautiful evening. And yeah. And we had a nice dinner at that new Brick House's place. And, oh, good. Uh, yeah. I was with some friends, and I was from the suburbs, most of them, and I was guiding him through our Byzantine public transportation system to get up there. And <laughs> you that think was, it's uh, Byzantine? Well, they did. <laughs> I, 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 I to me, it's sort of second nature, but there was a certain amount of come on, doors are closing, let's go, where, where, let's where go. are they from again? Some of them are, are from the city, but you know what I notice is that if you have a car, you tend to drive it, and you don't tend to be on trains and buses too much. You're and absolutely right. Since I've never owned a car, I'm sort of 38 years worth of riding around. Ooh, I've dated myself, haven't I? Oh, well. <laughs> anyway, seen a lot, it's done okay. a lot. We, but, we, we all date ourselves. But actually, I have to say, for the most part, it's pretty reliable, honestly. For the most part. Um, for uh, the most you, part. You know, it could be worse. It could be Washington, D.C. or New York City these days. <laughs> no kidding. They're having major transportation issues with their systems, and, and ours seems to be running pretty well, um, even in sub-zero weather. I really don't like those new red line trains where you got to sit sideways and cram your oh, yeah. bulk in between two other bulks, and it's just not, not a pleasant experience. The doors are closing. For them. For me. <laughs> well, my friend Julia is in media relations. She's a, a big shot in media relations, if you don't uh, mind my saying Comparatively so. speaking. Yeah. She has uh, <laughs> coordinated press for special events and public screenings, live political forums, things like that. You once met Barack Obama. I did. A number of times, I, actually. I think it was around three times, wow. actually. During, yeah. the, during the campaigns, correct? When he was running for Senate. I only met him one time after he was a senator. But yes, and he was pretty amazing the first time I met him. He came to where I was to do this political event. Mm -hmm. He was running late, and it had already started by the time he got there, and I had to guide him back to where it was. Was it all the candidates? Yes. Uh, there so were, were like seven or eight yeah, people? Yeah, seven or eight people sitting on the stage, and he had the seat on the end near the door. I guess he had had to leave his car in traffic. It was winter. I'm just standing out in the parking lot waiting for him, and he comes running up to me, not even breaking a sweat, with a big smile on his face, and he just said, well, where do I go? And I say, I'll show you, and he says, great, and we go running down the hall together, and he's just doesn't seem at all stressed out about it. Cool as a cucumber. Yeah, absolutely. So we get to the doors, and he turns to me, because there's a whole bunch of press out there waiting for him. Mm -hmm. He's already kind of a luminary. So we get there, and this press jumps out in front of us, and he turns to me, and he's laughing, and he says, look at me, I'm running for office. <laughs> and we all laughed, and this photographer took a picture. And the next day, it was on the cover of, I think, the Daily Southtown, this picture of him and me laughing. You know, oh, it, was a, it was a great thing. Fantastic. Uh, let me tell the folks a little bit about your background uh, previous to that. You worked for several years as an assistant to the producers at the Second City here I in Chicago. I did. Actually, I was the lone administrative person. I went to a show not that long ago. I hadn't been there in a really long time. And I was just astounded at how it, it just ran like clockwork. And it was so professional. And yeah. it was just not like that when I was there. No. I mean, to give you an idea, when I left, having an 
ulcer, nervous breakdown. I don't know what. I, I was just, I mean, after a while, you know. And I said, all right, well, this is my last day. It took me eight months to get out of there after I announced I was leaving because of all the trying to find somebody would do it <laughs> for the princely sum of, I think it was $130 a week at the time. Wow. So they said to me, well, do you have any vacation time coming? And I said, don't make me laugh. And our sick pay or anything like that. So the woman I was working for at the time just walked into the box office, opened the safe, picked up a crumpled paper bag and swept everything that was in that safe into the bag and handed it to me and said, well, good luck. That Was that you like your severance <laughs> yeah. and your vacation and your sick yes. pay, whatever they thought they owed you? Yes. I, I <laughs> seem to recall it being a couple thousand dollars. Wow. Which in the, at that time, I mean, my rent was like 190 a month. So that kept me for a while. In the financial world, that's called improvising. Ah, well, it was a very generous <laughs> thing. Yeah, that's it very really good. Was. Did you ever train with the Second City in improv or were you ever driven to try that as a career uh, or a hobby? No. I actually may be the only person that ever worked in there that did not want to be part of that. And the reason was I was doing Shakespeare at the time. You were an actress. Yeah, with a Shakespeare company. Our listeners should know you spent 15, 20 years almost as an actress around town in Chicago. I was all about having a script. I was all about the classics. I had trained at a theater conservatory in St. Louis. And I was doing classical theater at the time and singing. I think they found it a little bit refreshing that I was not going, oh, audition me. I I would, yeah. I I mean, I just didn't, it didn't seem like something. I did Improv Olympic for a while Mm -hmm. um, with some friends just because it was fun. And I was pretty good at like the make a song and that kind of thing. Yeah. I was working with Paul Sills at the time, who was a big guru of improvisational theater. He was directing us in Bertolt Brecht and, and right. other things right. like that. It was right. just, it was, we were doing actual scripted things sure. with him. And sure. I, I think, honestly, improv training would have been good for me, but I just was so sort of over, you know, when you, when you work somewhere, it's not glamorous or fun to you. It's right. like it's like eating the food at a restaurant where you work. I just saw too many bizarre things when right. I was there, right. and I, it was just not something I wanted to do after seeing the nitty gritty of it. Really, yeah. You mentioned that you were performing Shakespeare at the time. Did you do primarily Shakespeare and classic plays? I had helped with this wonderful guy named Frank Farrell. He had started in a sort of an improvisational theater Shakespeare company, mm-hmm. and we had this sort of ragtag group of actors. And Paul Sills would let us use his theater after hours, like 11 o'clock at night our shows would start. And the thing that was cool about it was that we would learn our lines. He would give us the lines, but not the play or the character names. Uh-huh. So you'd learn the lines, and you'd learn the cues where your lines were, but you didn't know what the play was or who you were. So you'd have to figure it out only from the lines that you had. And you got the script, and you learned the lines, and you learned your cues, and the next thing happened, you didn't rehearse. You showed up, and the audience was there, and you did the thing. Everybody was in the same boat. You didn't rehearse at all? No. Like, for instance, the first show that I did was, I found out later, Much Ado About Nothing. Mm -hmm. And I just remember that you had to listen really hard. (laughs) What was cool about it was that it it all happened right there in front of you and in front of the audience. And if something unexpected happened, you just went with it. So it wasn't a way improvisation. Sure, yeah, very much so. You had a script. I remember Frank would, he'd play a messenger and he'd show up in a Western Union outfit. Or one guy I remember decided his his character he tra- he found out was a steward, so he thought, okay, maybe I'm a wine steward. So he showed up and he'd have like an apron on and a bottle of wine and he'd be talking and like like yeah. gesturing to it. Yeah, it was just such a cool thing. So after about a year and a half or so of this, we had this idea on Shakespeare's birthday one year to do a 24-hour Shakespeare marathon. And it's funny, Eric Zorin at the Trib was reminiscing the other day that... Chicago Tribune? Yes, it was the very first thing that he wrote about, or one of the first stories that he did. And he came and brought his sleeping bag, and he stayed for the entire 24 hours and wrote about it. That's cool. And we did 
Midsummer Night's Dream at the very beginning, and we did it at the very end. So that by the end, you could see it was like a dance marathon. We were literally going to walk around with numbers on our chest like a dance marathon. (laughs) And we did it for charity. I think it was Easter Seals. Uh, But the thing I mostly remember about it was at about 2 in the morning, I was playing Julia in Two Gentlemen of Verona. And I was on stage waiting for this other actress to come on. And unbeknownst to me, she had fallen asleep back there. And I remember being out there trying to improvise iambic pentameter, which is not easy, and waiting and waiting and waiting. And the girl, the actress, her name was Betty. I'm out there, and from backstage, I hear somebody go, Betty, 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 you're on, you're on. And then a couple seconds later, I hear Betty saying, I am? How am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) Classic. And then we started going into parks. We did As You Like It actually running through a a forest. Oh, sure. With the audience running after us carrying camp stools. And we we would blow a whistle and we'd stop and a scene would start and the audience would sit on their stools and watch it. And then we'd blow another whistle and then we'd pick up and run off. We did Midsummer Night's Dream that way in Michigan somewhere where there was a big dune and, mm-hmm. a, and a lake and mm-hmm. all of that. And I just have this memory of doing the four lovers scene, rolling down a sand dune and ending up in the drink. You have to be young to do that after a while. You know, the longer you do theater, there are a few things that happen. One of them is, for me, I was trained in everything, but I didn't think to be scared or mm-hmm. nervous. Mm-hmm. But the longer I did it, the more scared and nervous I got. So you start going up on your lines and you start having stupid mistakes. And Mm. there was one show that I was rehearsing. I was in this play, not a Shakespeare play. It was some other thing. And the actor playing my husband is supposed to pull a gun on me. And I'm supposed to back up and sort of fall down. And I had forgotten that I had put my wine glass on the floor behind me. When I fell backwards... It, it looked great, you know, and I remember thinking, oh, I need to make this look a little more dramatic. And I, I flung my left arm back and I smashed the wine glass with my left hand. Well, that was, let's see, $3,000, an emergency room visit, oh physical therapy, God. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I just thought, yeah. you know, I better get out of this before I kill yeah. myself. Plus, I was getting more and more nearsighted. And I couldn't wear contacts. I see. I was having trouble. So there was one night when I played an entire scene to somebody who hadn't walked out on stage yet because I couldn't tell that they weren't there. Interesting. Interesting choice, Julia. It's a problem. Yeah, I would think so. Now, you also sang for a number of years in a jazz combo trio or... uh, A female vocal jazz trio, yes. Female vocal jazz trio. Tell me about that. What were they called? It started out being called 3 a.m. because that was the time of our first gig. We were, <laughs> we were doing an open mic at the Green Mill. We waited and waited and waited, and finally the first time we ever sang there, we were on at 3 in the morning, at which point all of our loyal fans, which we didn't have any, but they were there and they were half asleep. So at first we did that, but then people started thinking, well, what, do you only perform at 3 in the morning? Or It was just a weird thing. So we changed it to Moon Glow. Moon Glow. Yeah, which was unfortunate because there was another female vocal jazz trio in town called Stardust, and we were constantly getting confused with them. It's just you couldn't win. And I, I had this idea at one point. Someone had given me a cookbook. <laughs> a cookbook. <laughs> yeah, why, why do you laugh? That's another at- whole story. But this cookbook was called Cakes Men Like. And I thought, this would be a great name. It's like, look, if Squirrel Nut Zippers can be the name of a group, I thought Cakes Men Like could be the name of a group. But they thought it wouldn't, people wouldn't take us seriously. And I said, "Uh, do they take us seriously now? I mean. Moon Glow? Well, I know you do that so that you can sing Moon Glow and this is your signature song and all that. Right, right. But I said, well, then we should write a song called Cakes Men Like. And do that. Very wise. Uh, uh, That never panned out. You never changed your name to Kingsman like. No. Uh, So how did that play out? How did that just come to an end at some point? I got sick. And I didn't know I was sick. And you know how it is when you have like a chronic thing and you are so used to feeling terrible that you're in denial about it because that's how you normally feel. Mm. And so I was getting to a point where I was falling asleep at the mic So I had to go get something done about it. And while I was doing that, they decided to move on. (laughs) Oh. And I I did not learn about this until about six or seven months later when I was perfectly well again. 
And I ran into one of them at a party and we had a perfectly lovely conversation. And then I went to the buffet line at this party and I was getting some potato salad or whatever. And this man next to me said, oh, you used to be with that group Moonglow. And I said, oh, well, yeah. And I was starting to say something along the lines of, well, we're just taking a break or this is just a temporary whatever. Uh-huh. And they said to me, you know, I met their new member. She's really good. that's how you found out. Yes. Oh, my God. And I don't blame them, honestly, Mm. because I can see from their point of view why they did. It just would have been nice if they had told me. It would have been nice. Nice if I hadn't had to hear it from some random stranger in a buffet line getting a club soda, you know. (laughs) Well, here's the funny part of the story, though. So that was New Year's Eve. It was a New Year's Eve party. And it was also a big birthday party for somebody. So they had this enormous birthday cake. And I'm all about birthday cake, as you know. So I decided, you know what? I don't really want to ring in the new year with everybody here knowing that this happened and me not knowing. And I just want to go home and watch Dick Clark or whatever. So I was leaving. I called a cab. And I was leaving. And the hostess said to me, oh, no, no, no. You, you need to have some of this cake. So she cut me this enormous piece of cake and put it on a plate and a big plastic bag and threw some forks in there. So I get in the cab and I'm kind of shell-shocked. So we're riding up Western Avenue, and this cab driver turns to me and says, what is that? And I say, well, it's, it's birthday cake. He goes, well, it looks good. I said, do you want some? He goes, hmm, okay. So we pull over on Western Avenue. He comes in the back seat, and I hand him a fork, and I pull it out of the bag, and then we sit there for like half an hour. So I rang in the new year that year, eating birthday cake in the back of a cab with an anonymous cab driver who I never saw again, but was really nice and showed me pictures of his kids, so... You know, we talk a lot about theater and special events that we've gone to recently. One is a wonderful, wonderful play called At the Table. This is by mm. a theater company called <laughs> Broken Nose Theater Company. Uh, more power to they, it. They mounted this back in the uh, in the winter, and it was a huge hit, and they were in a very small house. Yeah, like I read about 40 this. 40 seats or something. So they've remounted it in a larger theater with about 60-some or 70-some seats. Well, it's a terrific play. It's one of the great ensemble pieces I've seen in a long, long time. It's kind of like a big chill. All of these people gather at a country house, and they sit around a table, and they eat, and they talk, and they drink. And the title has a little bit of a double entendre. There's a theme that runs through it about who gets to sit at what table. In other words, Do you get an opinion about something, a topic that maybe you just know about peripherally, gender or race or something? Mm -hmm. And and who actually gets to be part of those conversations? And it's a fascinating portrayal of that. And there's a lot of discussion, a lot of conflict. And it's a wonderful, wonderful cast. Unfortunately, listeners, they have extended into the first week of August. But I just went on the website and that is completely sold out. So the rest of the run is gone. Good but for them. <laughs> it, it's, it is fantastic for them. This is written by Michael Perlman and directed by Spencer Davis. It will have another life for sure. If they can get an ensemble like this together, I think there's nine people in the cast. It's quite large. And a friend of ours, friend of the show, Evan Linder, who was a playwright and an actor, he's in the show and he's wonderful. It's, it's one of the really, really great theater experiences I've had in Chicago in, in quite some time. Maybe since Bahalia. Which, speaking of Evan Linder, mm. that, that's his play. I need to ask you about your fascination with something. You've been a Clay Aiken fan for <laughs> ever. For as long uh-huh. as, well, certainly as long as I've known you. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly what year Mr. Aiken became famous on the second season of... <laughs> <laughs> on the second season of American Idol, but... You've seen him everywhere. You've traveled to concerts. You've, you've met him. How did you get so enamored with Clay? You know, it's funny. I had never been a fan of anyone. I'd never been one of these people hanging out at the stage door anywhere or, or going. To, I, I mean, I'd rarely even been to a concert, honestly. And I saw him on the show and liked his voice. That, that was really the be-all and end-all of it. I just liked him as a musician, as a singer. Mm-hmm. That was my only interest, really. So I was online, and you know, you run across these message boards and things like that, and there was this message board at this site that used to be called Television Without Pity. It was a TV review site. It was all about television. Oh. And the American Idol one, 
had a thread about him. And I thought, well, I'm going to follow this and see what people are saying and all this sort of thing. The people who followed him, oddly enough, were really funny, smart, hilarious people because his fan base was older women. Mm -hmm. You didn't see very many, like 20-somethings. There were a few, but mostly they were older women. And so I started following them, and I started noticing that there were a lot of them that were local. And so when he, when he, that American Idol tour came to Chicago, I sort of thought to myself, you know, maybe I should go see. So I just bought a random Ticketmaster ticket online, like the 30th row United Center. He was about the size of a gnat. And I, <laughs> I sat, I happened to sit next to this woman who was a big Clay fan also. And I became really good friends with her and we exchanged contact information and then we got together. This was a wonderful lady who I never would have met otherwise because our paths just wouldn't have crossed, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she got in touch with me one day, and she said, I thought our seats were terrible for that show, and there were all these mic issues, and we couldn't see him or hear him. When he's going to St. Louis in a few weeks, if I get really good seats, will you go? Go to St. Louis? What are you talking about? I said, to see a show that I've already seen, to travel all that way, and I thought, well, she's never going to get good seats for that, so what the hell? Sure, I'll say that. So I did. She called me a few days later. She said, well, I got fifth row center. I go, well, I guess we're going. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So we went, and we're driving down there, and I'm just thinking, this is the craziest thing I've done. Well, little did I know what was coming. We get down there and it was this sort of a hard day's night situation where we met all these people that were on the message boards that I knew only as screen names. So I got to know these people and pretty soon I just found myself sort of swept up in it. To the point of, they'd say, well, where are we going this weekend? I'd be like, well, all right. I just remember thinking, well, this is like the Grateful Dead, only with nice SUVs and jewelry and credit cards. (laughs) That's what this is about. So I found myself in Vegas being mistaken for Clay's mother in the mall. And I don't know why. It was just one of these being swept up. And, And, you know, my friends had free frequent flyer miles and hotel points and I just found myself sort of going. Yeah. And and I did really enjoy his performances, though. Mm -hmm. He's a wonderful, wonderful performer. Funny as hell, too. Well, and I I had him at the Genesee Theater. Yes, um, yes. uh, Up here in Waukegan when I was running that building, and you came up with a small group of friends of yours. Well, and Gary, this is what's funny about that, because Gary, my good friend Gary, got me really amazing seats. That was one of the final times I ever saw him. Mm. He was not performing so much. He wanted to go into politics. Yeah. That's what he wanted. Ran but, for a seat in what? With South Carolina? Um, North, North Car- Carolina? His district in North Carolina, North Carolina. Congress. He should have won, too. He would have been win. good. He would have been good. He would have been well, good. He's yeah. a smart guy. He was engaged yeah. in the issues. So I started out my fandom with Clay being the size of a gnat. By the end, I was about 18 inches from his kneecaps. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I was in the first row of the orchestra pit. And in the meantime, he had a Christmas story contest for one of his tours. And he was looking for Christmas stories for this tour. And if he liked it, he would have the person get up on stage and read their story as part of the show. And I thought, well, this has me all over it. Are you kidding? And yeah. so I wrote down about four different stories that I had, submitted them. And I got a message from his tour people saying, could you please read these into the phone as an audition? I had to read them onto a voicemail message. Uh I guess they wanted to know if I could walk and chew gum at the same time or if I could talk. So I waited till like two in the morning when the trains weren't going by my place really loud and drank some wine because I was nervous. (laughs) And I did them. Always helps loosen up the pipes. Well, I'm, yeah. So I did that, a couple glasses of white wine, and I was good to go. And I did them. And then I didn't hear a thing. Not a thing. And I had run them by a few people, including one fan that I knew who was a screenwriter in L.A. And she was on the picket line at the time because it was a big writer's strike in L.A. So she had nothing better to do than walk around reading people's stories. So she offered to do it. And she wrote me back. She said, if he doesn't pick one of these, I don't know what the heck he's looking for. Suddenly I get this email going, okay, be there tomorrow at this time and wear this. And this was in South Bend. About uh, two and a half hours from here. Yeah, it was the Morris Auditorium in South Bend. Wonderful, beautiful theater. In fact, we've gone back there a number of times because you can see Broadway shows there for less. Mm -hmm. So I go there, and this was the most amazing experience because the story was a funny story. It was all about how I was singing with the trio, and we were doing a big Christmas show somewhere. This was the Christmas tie-in, and my dress caught on fire. 
borrowed dress with ostrich feathers on it that I... While you're singing right. uh, on stage. Right. So there's this guy in the audience in the tux, kind of drunk guy, going, hey, hey. And so in the end, we ended up doing the stop, drop, and roll and with eggnog on us to... Oh it was just a it, was a... it was right out of I Love Lucy, the story. It was just that kind of story. So I did the story, and it stopped the show. And I'm just out there, and I can't see him. He's behind me someplace. But everybody told me that he and his bag of singers were just doubled over on the floor. Then when he tried to go on with the show, they couldn't. And I'd never met him at that point. I'd, oh, I'd never even... really? No. I met him after the show. I thought he didn't like it. I get home at one in the morning and there's another email going, hey, come to Waukegan and do the same thing. So I did <laughs> the next mm-hmm. night. And then I think there was one more, Merrillville. The Star, Star Theater. The Star Theater. Star yeah, Theater. Yeah, I did it yeah. again there. And then people were all going to me, well, now you're going to be part of the tour, right? And, How many times you know, would you estimate happen. that you've actually seen Clay Aiken in concert? Mm. Maybe 30 or 40. Yeah. Between 30 and 40, yeah. I think. I went to see him on Broadway in Spamalot. Yes, he appeared in Spamalot for short periods of time, twice, for, yes. for several months. Yes, yeah. I saw that 10 times. Oh my God. Which wow. now, now I think to myself, you know, maybe you should have gone down the street and seen some other things. But for did you ever uh, did you ever travel to Texas to see him? Not Texas. I, I bring that up because I need to uh, let our listeners know about something. The Alamo Draft House outside of Austin, Texas, has given a new life to the 1975 Spielberg thriller Jaws. Mm. Now, longtime listeners of this show, even short-time listeners, will know that I have an uh, I think a very healthy fear of sharks. I don't know if you're afraid of sharks or if you think they exist in Lake Michigan like I do. Uh, Maybe you haven't heard of this, Gary, but there's now a new, I saw this on on Facebook or somewhere, where people can watch Jaws while floating on rafts in a big pool or something. Is Uh, that right? It's now at the (laughs) Volente Beach Water Park. Oh, man. About 45 minutes from downtown Austin on a man-made lake called Lake Travis. The tickets are $55, and they include an inner tube and access to the <laughs> water park's slides, uh, it, just oh, in case you're man. not pumped up with adrenaline enough. So you float in these inner tubes in a lake at night, and you watch Jaws on the big screen. Do you know, I remember the first time I saw Jaws in the movie theater that summer. I was holding one of those big tubs of popcorn, mm. and when that head popped out from the, the bottom of the boat, you oh, know, which, sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. when that happened, that tub of popcorn went about 20 feet in the air. <laughs> I mean, people are still sure. got grease stains, I am sure. I'm sure you're, you're not the only uh, one that that happened to. That is one of the scariest portions of the movie. It's that one moment. of the scariest movies I ever saw. Yeah, uh, one of the scariest I've ever seen as well. There's food, drink, local beers are for sale. Oh, so you're not the food? I would think that... No? Dr- <laughs> not at the start of the movie, but by the end. <laughs> so you may want some liquid courage. Your uh, chum. <laughs> as you dangle your feet into the unknown in oh, front of you. Oh, man. It doesn't sound like something I would uh, I But would you're plugging do. it nevertheless. I am plugging it nevertheless. I'm sure other people are going to do this. Other other cities are going to try to figure out a way to do this. Good. By the way, Clay is going to be in the next Sharknado movie. As himself or as an actual character? I do not know. I'm guessing as himself. Hilarious. And of course, any guest star that's in Sharknado, you know what happens to them, right? Yeah. Yes, I do. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they polish them off. We've talked a lot about storytelling and you writing things and uh, reading them uh, at Clay Aiken concerts and stopping the show cold. I wonder if I could impose upon you, Julia, to actually read one of your stories on the air. It's not a long story. It's about a page and a half. Would you be uh, up for that challenge? Yeah, I could do that. Tell us the name of this story. It's called Kissing Frogs and Other Amphibians. Okay. In the course of my adult life, 100% of it as a single person, I have dated and kissed a lot of frogs. And for the life of me, I can't recall any of them turning into princes. The Brothers Grimm have a lot to answer for, if you ask me. At this point, if someone offered me a choice between an income tax audit or a blind date, I have to sit down and think it over. (laughs) One of the many cases in point, 
couple of years ago, I was suffering through my umpteenth blind date, a fix-up, as opposed to the personal Zad variety. This was my least favorite kind because the friend fixing you up, A, doesn't think enough of this person to date them herself, but thinks they'd be just perfect for you, and B, as such, is usually unduly anxious for the date to be a success. And I've always hated to let people down. Anyway, I don't even remember much about this mope, except that as we were awkwardly discussing our music preferences over the salads, I mentioned that I was a fan of Clay Aiken. He said something derogatory about him that I won't repeat here. Just think of it as typical homophobic stuff. And you know, it's odd. One minute I was sitting there demurely sipping a tall glass of ice water, and the next thing I knew, it was running off the guy's chin. And the glass, having bounced off his chest, was in his lap. It just somehow flew out of my hand in his general direction. And the next thing after that, I was slipping the waiter a five to clean up the mess while I strode indignantly out of there. Dating rule number 27. Always bring plenty of money in case you need to cover the bill or beat a hasty retreat. (laughs) Did I feel badly about dousing the louse? Nah. Did I ever hear from the guy again? What do you think? (laughs) Did you know that I hold the record for the shortest blind date on record? Really, look it up in the Guinness Book. It's probably there. Another fix-up. I arrived, and here's what happened. Now take out a stopwatch and time this, and you'll see that I was right. Me. Hi, Catherine's told me a lot about you. Him. I thought you'd be better looking. Me. And I thought you'd have some class. An end scene. (laughs) See, what did I tell you? Another quote-unquote friend set me up with my first and only Republican now, no offense to any Republicans out there. I'm, I'm sure some of you are nice. I'm, yeah, I'm sure lots of you are nice. But I knew this particular relationship was probably doomed when he swaggered into my 1920s vintage hardwood floor walk-up, looked around and said, well, this is okay, but I don't see why you don't live in a high-rise on Lakeshore Drive, the most expensive street in the city. It's a lot nicer. I'm sure he thought homeless folks, with the limitless options available to them, choose to live in cardboard boxes in the subway tunnel, too. After a long, ravenous drive to the restaurant, never travel for food, during which he said he wished Reagan would stay in office forever, (laughs) and I contemplated taking a bite out of the dashboard, it turned out that he was one of those guys who insists on ordering for you, which he did, much to my displeasure. A few days later, after our date ended abruptly when an undeclared ingredient in the polenta landed me in the emergency room, he called... And as a consolation, offered to escort me to our mutual quote-unquote friend's New Year's Eve party. Since I didn't yet have a date, I reluctantly (laughs) agreed. Then, you guessed it, he stood me up. Oh my, what was a girl to do? I dressed up my Ken doll in his best tux, affixed him to my shoulder with a big safety pin, and introduced him to everyone at the party as my date. He was a hit, and better company than the elephant Understandably, that quote-unquote friend never again tried to set me up with anybody. I have no idea why. I have also dated my share of actor types, generally a poverty-stricken, narcissistic breed, including a perfectly charming guy whose gums started bleeding spontaneously right there in the restaurant. Also, memorably, one who had neglected to mention his glass eye and thought it would be fun to float it in my water glass as a joke. (laughs) Double ew. And last but not least, the male model I caught in my bedroom trying on my red patent leather slingbacks. Dating rule number 54, never date a guy who's prettier than you are. Probably my most lethal blind date disaster was a pudgy guy named Marty, who I met in the co-ed jacuzzi at the YMCA one cold (laughs) January day. (laughs) One advantage of meeting a man when he's wearing a Speedo is that there are few remaining secrets. (laughs) Naturally, that works both ways. And any guy who hits on you, having actually seen the expanse of mottled, dead-of-winter, white flesh protruding from your chlorine-faded tank suit, is probably not very discriminating, just saying. Of course, in all fairness, the fact that in no universe did he have any business appearing in public in a Speedo tells you how discriminating I was, I suppose. Might as well admit it, we were equally indiscriminate. I always tell people this, and nobody ever believes me. He showed up for our first date with an overnight bag. (laughs) Confident much? (laughs) Moreover, he somehow contrived to leave it at my apartment when we left for dinner, giving him the perfect excuse to come back afterwards and get it. Get it? (laughs) 
Got it? <laughs> Got it. <laughs> During a way too salty dinner at a bad Mexican restaurant, he rattled on and on about himself, recounting in excruciating detail his recent oral surgery, even going so far as to floss at the table. And damn, I liked that blouse. <laughs> Some cronies of his stopped by the table, and smirking, he introduced me to them as his lady. Holy crap. <laughs> it's a damn good thing that restaurants have back doors, don't you think? I wonder how long it took him to figure out that I hadn't gone to the ladies' room. Dating rule number 98, always scope out an escape route. I wish I could tell you that nobody stole his overnight bag after I left it out on the front <laughs> steps, but now you would think he'd never have anything to do with me again after that, wouldn't you? But you'd be wrong. I got awfully tired of deleting his messages off my voicemail. Some folks are glutton for punishment, I guess. I'm not suggesting for an instant that all men are worthless louts, selfish egomaniacs, or classless idiots. Just the ones I've dated. <laughs> Marvelous. Do you know I've never been on a blind date? Ever. I don't recommend it. <laughs> We used to have a friend, well, we still have a friend, and she had a long dating life before she mm. finally met Mr. Wright, and uh, she's happily married now, but she has some great stories, and she was part of a program called Just Lunch. I, I remember hearing about yeah, that. Yeah, you'd, you'd just have lunch, so there'd be no nighttime commitment, no having to dress up. You just come from work, you have lunch for an hour, and you see how it goes, and you go back. And she would tell the most amazing stories. My favorite one was she met some guy, and I think his name was Jim or John, something just plain. And they sit down, and she introduces herself, and he says, call me Schwinn. Like the bicycle, for, for no particular reason at all. And I think her water glass was halfway to her mouth, and she had to pause there. Um, but, oh, but she really? No spit stories. take? Because no, that's... That would have been fantastic. Uh, I, I, I do love that. That's a fantastic story. Thank you for reading it. I have to tell you, I did have a blind date once at lunch, and this guy, he conducted this thing like it was a job interview. So at the end of the lunch, he said something like, well... I really enjoyed this. This was great. I think we should continue to have lunch, but I just don't think your dinner material. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I didn't make the cut. Dang. You didn't make the nighttime cut. And I said, well, I would hate for you to waste your time and all. It says something about me that I, I didn't, I wasn't even offended by that at that point. It was sort of like, great. Thank you for not wasting my time. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> it sounds like this uh, pasting this Ken doll to your shoulder and taking him as your date was a big hit. Um, yes. Actually, at the end of the evening, there was a friend of mine there who had um, an a adolescent, a teenage girl, I think two of them, I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly, but she was kind of a wallflower. Mm. And at the end of the evening, I, I felt bad for her because she was in this room and, you know, she just didn't quite know what to do with herself. And I noticed that the Ken doll really really connected with her, you know? I mean, it was like a thing that she thought was so cool. Mm. So at the end of the evening, Ken went home with someone else. Yeah. Oh. E even It was even okay. Ken. She, she needed him more than I did. I see. That's sweet. That is so sweet. <laughs> I should mention that the Grand Park Music Festival is doing their Broadway-themed concert on July 21st and 22nd this year. And their Broadway theme this year is called A Broadway Romance. Uh, why am I mentioning this? Well, uh, yours truly will be doing the pre-concert presentation before each of those concerts. That's um, really cool. Yeah, and I will be in the family fun tent at 5.30 on Friday the 21st and 6.30 on Saturday the 22nd. Uh, my guests will be the musical director and guest conductor at Ted Sperling, a fantastic vocalist and uh, Broadway star Laura Osnes, and uh, Santino Fontana, who is famous for being uh, the voice of the prince in Frozen, the film. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So come on out to the Grand Park Music Festival. Free, 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 free music in the park. Uh, bring your picnic basket, uh, have yourself a little party out there on the lawn, and uh, watch a Broadway romance.
works by Gershwin and Bernstein, um, Frank Lesser, Lerner and Lowe, uh, Harold Arlen, even some Sondheim thrown in there. A few weeks ago, Julia, we went to see Audra McDonald in a one-night-only, by herself, with a pianist. Isn't uh, she amazing? Doing just songs and chatting. The pianist was Seth Rudetsky, who's oh, yes. uh, fairly well-known yeah. in the uh, theater world and, and in the satellite radio world. They did a wonderful, wonderful program. She is, well, words cannot describe seeing her in a small environment up close. Six-time Tony Award winner. She's the only person to have won uh, Tony in all four acting categories for mm, that's uh, featured yes. and uh, lead in plays and musicals. You I can, have seen her in well, a small space. It's just incredible. Yeah, she she, she is unbelievable and what a vocal instrument and she did a duet with her husband as well uh, mm-hmm. I guess the baby the new baby was backstage this was a great show and uh, I, I just wanted to mention if you ever have a chance to see Audrey they do this in, in a number of places they tour around a bit when she's not in a show mm-hmm. and she's currently not in something in New York so it may come to your town and if it does, I encourage you to beg, borrow, and steal to get a ticket to Audrey McDonald. We often do a little parlor game called Chat Pack with our guests. Okay. And they're just random questions. I don't really know what they are. These were uh, chosen before the show, and I have not seen them. Okay. And I wonder if you'd be game to play a couple of these with me. Um, I'm game. I'm game for anything. The, God bless you. Why don't you choose one of those? Okay. Well, it looks like a long one. Go ahead. If you could take any job for just one month, what job would you like to have? Assume that you would have the skills and knowledge to perform adequately. Ooh, let's see. Uh, Cake tester. (laughs) Cake tester. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that that job actually exists. You, You might have to make that job up. But I am most certainly qualified. You know, my grandmother on my father's side, she used to work for Peter Pan, which is a oh really a, you know the the peanut the, the butter, peanut butter yes. company here in Chicago, and uh, she started as a cook in the process of you know making whatever other things that they made. They made a lot of canned goods and things, but she started in the kitchens and eventually worked herself up to a taster. Mm. She was a peanut butter taster. Ah. Do you know, years ago, I worked at Quaker Oats. They did pet food. I've forgotten what brand of pet food they had. But there were pet food tasters. Oh. That's not something I would want to do. But there were. I will say, and this is absolutely true, that my boss at Quaker Oats at the time, who was the head of the pet food division, was named Mr. Yap. (laughs) Now that has to go into a story somewhere. It is completely true. Let's play another chat pack. Okay. What is your all-time favorite scene from a movie? Well, you're a huge movie buff. This might be very hard for you. I'm just going to take the first one that comes into my head. That's fair. It is from The Lady Eve. It is a scene where Barbara Stanwyck is sitting. She plays the lead. She's a card sharp, mm-hmm. and she's and her she and her uncle are card sharps on a cruise ship. Right. And they run across this young, naive millionaire played by Henry, Henry Fonda. Fonda. He's like a 1940s version of sort of a dork. And he's sitting in this restaurant, and all of these women, knowing that he's a millionaire, are trying to catch his attention. And she is looking at them through a compact, a mirror, and commenting on all of the losers that are trying to get his attention. <laughs> and to the point where it gets to the end, and you see him getting fed up and walking out of the frame, and the next thing you see is her sticking her leg out and tripping him. Yes. So yes. he lands and, and does one of his many pratfalls in the movie where he glass shatters and he gets covered yeah, with gook. Yeah, he's and wonderful in he's, that film. He's so funny. And it was one of the few comedy things that he did, maybe mm-hmm. the only one that I know of. That scene, still, every time I see it, just kills me. The whole movie kills me. Yeah. I wanted to be that character. Plus, there were so many things in the movie, because it's Preston Sturgis, that Mm -hmm. they left in 
that were things that someone else would cut out. Like a, a love scene where this there's this horse who keeps headbutting Henry Fonda during the scene, and they're both trying to keep it together, and the, uh-huh. the horse has got a big crush on Henry Fonda, you can tell. The horse steals that scene. Won't stay sure. out of the scene. Will not stay out so of the shot. For me, though, the whole sardonic commentary in the makeup mirror of these these women, oh, a lady wrestler, well, give it your shot, you know, yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. And since uh, threes are comedy genius, let's play one more of these. Okay. <laughs> if you could be the spokesperson for any product on the market, what product would you choose to enthusiastically represent? Wow. This is a product that I found on Facebook. It's a purse that I have. It's called a sash. I brought it with me today. I saw you wearing um, it when yes. you came in. The thing I love about it is it's like a hands-free thing. It has room for everything, but it's flat to the body, and it weighs almost nothing. I have three of them, and they are not cheap. However, they are designed is by it, these... Is it leather? Is it yes. made out of leather? Yes, but they have cloth ones as well. Uh-huh. I just have found it to be the most wonderful thing. I can ride my bike wearing it. You can put it under a coat... And it's flat to the body, so if you're worried about security or whatever, mm-hmm. it's it's adjustable. Some of them they make are one side one color and the other side another color, so you can flip it over. They're cloth, they're leather, They some have fringe on them, but they're made by these a couple of ladies. They were designed by a couple of ladies in their living room in, like, Santa Monica. But they're designed in America, and they're yeah. marketed in America. Yeah. But what, just, what are they called again? It's called a sash. Sash. And it's called that because it's like... A beauty pageant. It looks sash. like a sash, yeah. So that is a product I would endorse. It's Wonderful. Been great. Well, get yeah. get online, listeners, and look for the sash. It's cool. on Facebook. You'll see they've got a page, but yeah. really wonderful. Well, we're coming up to our allotted time, Julia, mm. but we always finish our program with a segment that we call the Kiss of Death. Okay. Uh, it is a profile of someone who has just recently passed, and it's a celebration of that person's life. Sometimes they're very famous, sometimes they're not famous at all. This is from the New York Times, and it's by our favorite obituary writer, and also has been a guest on the show, Marguerite Fox. Ah, She's a wonderful writer. This is Sheila Michaels. Have you heard of Sheila Michaels? No. Well, Sheila Michaels, half a century ago, wielded two consonants in a period and changed the way modern women are addressed. Ms. Michaels introduced the honorific Ms. into Ah. common parlance. Ms. Michaels, who over the years worked as a civil rights organizer, a New York cab driver, technical (laughs) editor, oral historian, and I'll get to this a little bit later in the piece, Japanese restaurateur, go figure. Because why not? Why not? Uh, She did not coin Ms., nor did she ever claim to have done so, but working quietly with little initial support from the women's movement at the time, she was midwife to the term, ushering it back into being after a decades-long slumber. I was fascinated by this. According to the uh, Oxford English Dictionary, Ms. is attested as far back as 1901, when the Sunday Republican newspaper in Springfield, Massachusetts, wrote the following. The abbreviation Ms. MS period is simple, it is easy to write, and the person concerned can translate it properly according to the circumstances. But for generations, Ms. lay dormant. Ms. Michaels first encountered the term in the 1960s. She was living in Manhattan at the time sharing an apartment with another civil rights worker named Mari Hamilton. And one day, collecting the mail, she happened to glance at the address on Miss Hamilton's copy of News and Letters. News and Letters was a <laughs> Marxist publication. Mm. <laughs> and uh, Mari Hamilton was a, a, a subscriber. It was read. And it read, Ms. Mari Hamilton. Well, thinking the word was a typographical error, she showed it to Miss Hamilton, but it was no typo. The Marxist, at least, appeared to have had a handle on Ms. and its historical meaning. Ms. Michaels grew up in St. Louis. She had known women who were called Ms. So-and-so. In the South, it's a respectful, generically used tradition there, and it was not unfamiliar to her to have heard that pronunciation. So Ms. was already kind of in her Mm -hmm. vocabulary. An ardent feminist, she had long dreamed of finding an honorific to fill a gap in the English lexicon, a term for women that, like Mr., did not trumpet its subject 
subject's marital status. Uh, her motives were personal as well as political. Ms. Michaels had a rather dim view of marriage, partly as a result of her mother's experiences <laughs> both in and out of wedded matrimony. Ooh, I can relate. She was the daughter of Alma Weil Michaels, uh, a writer for radio serials. Her full name was Sheila Babs Michaels. Her middle name was Babs. <laughs> I guess that might have, that might have been a popular can, thing. Can at you the see time. her parents going, "Well, what should we make her middle name?" Well, let's say Babs. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Of well, all the maybe things. it was handed down and through the family. She was born in 1939, and she was given the surname of her mother's husband, Bill Michaels, at the time, though he was not her father. Her biological father was her mother's lover, Ephraim London, who was a noted civil liberties lawyer, hmm. um, and she did not meet him until she was 14. After high school, she enrolled in the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. She was expelled in her sophomore year, partly, she said, for her anti-segregationist editorials as a member of the board of the campus newspaper. In uh, 1959, she moved to New York. Uh, she went to work for the Congress of Racial Equality. In 1962, she worked with the organization in Mississippi. She worked in Tennessee as an editor of the Knoxville Crusader, a civil rights newspaper there mm. at the time, where her co-editor was Marion S. Berry Jr., the future oh, mayor man. of Washington. <laughs> During these years, Miss Michaels was seeking, as she said, a quote, a title for a woman who did not belong to a man. I didn't belong to my father, and I didn't belong to a husband, someone who could tell me what to do. I had not seen very many marriages I'd want to emulate. She's quoted as saying, on seeing the fateful mailing to her roommate that day in the 1960s, she wondered whether these two incompatible consonants might solve her problem. Miss Michaels' proposal met with very little interest from other feminists. The modern women's movement was then just in the embryo stages. Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, widely uh, credited with having been its catalyst, would not appear until 1963. Well, around 1969, Miss Michaels appeared on a radio program as a member of the Feminists, capital F, which was a far left-wing women's rights group. <laughs> <laughs> During a quiet moment in the conversation, she brought up the term MS, period. And the radio interviewer asked her how to pronounce it, and she recalled answering Ms like she remembered uh, back from her growing up uh, in St. Louis and uh, being in the South. Well, not long afterwards, when Gloria Steinem was casting about for the name of the progressive women's magazine she was helping to found, she was alerted to Ms. Michaels' broadcast. The magazine, titled Ms., made its debut in late 1971 as an insert in New York Magazine. And the honorific has since become ubiquitous throughout North America, Britain, and the English-speaking world. A longtime resident of the Lower East Side of Manhattan, her marriage to Hikaru Shiki, a <laughs> chef with whom she ran a restaurant in Lower Manhattan mm. uh, in the 1980s, unfortunately ended in divorce. In the end, then, Miss Michaels leaves a legacy both minute and momentous, two consonants and a small dot, three characters that forever changed English discourse. Sheila Michaels was 78. It's quite a life. <laughs> it's quite the life. <laughs> Sharna, it sounds like she tried on a lot of different hats. A lot. She even says herself that she didn't coin this. It, it had been around, but she found a way to make it popular. I don't remember when exactly this was, but there was a certain point where you had to fill out one of those forms that had a box that you checked. Mm. And I always remember the first time I saw Ms. as an option. And I remember thinking... Wow, that's a great idea. Because, you know, you were reluctant to check that box because people would, it, it, it meant you were vulnerable. Mm, that yeah. maybe you would be preyed upon as a single person. And Miss had a very submissive feeling about it. And I remember thinking, oh, Miss, yeah, that's me, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Checking that box. You are a Miss. Well, yeah. you've been a stimulating guest, Julia. Love your stories. You're a, a marvelous storyteller and uh, very entertaining. Thank you for coming up to our beautiful studios here in Evanston, Illinois. Today. You're welcome. Listeners and friends, like us on uh, Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Go to our website at uh, www.booth-one.com for more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and see you next time. <laughs>